to Unboxing E-Commerce. I'm James Marks, a serial entrepreneur who built and recently exited an e-commerce fulfillment service called Whiplash. I've been investigating business mysteries since I launched my first business when I was 17. I'm Jennifer Yates, a business operations leader, creator, and connector. I quickly see the landscape of a business from all Zoom levels, angles, and relationships. We use our combined expertise and curiosity to understand the process behind the package. Each episode, we order from your favorite brands and reverse engineer their operations stack. We learn what tools they're using and why, so we can run your business like the pros. Jennifer, are you ready to unbox e-commerce? I'm ready. Let's get to that box. Hey, James. Hey, How Jennifer. Are you? I am so good. We're not in our usual spot. You can probably hear activity around us. We're surrounded by people. My heart is racing. Mine too. I'm actually a little nervous. So we are at a conference in Las Vegas that you got us invited to. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Manifest. Yeah. So we're here because last year I saw pictures of all of my friends in e-commerce, arms linked with a manifest sign before them. And I have never felt the FOMO quite as strongly as in that moment, having spent the pandemic uh, on the sidelines. We're out of out of e-commerce by my own choice. And I was like, man, I, I guess I got to go to manifest next year. They say, uh, when you feel that kind of hurt, that means now you know what you want, right? And so in that moment, I knew I knew where I had to go. You were FOMOing. I was definitely FOMOing. Yeah. And we're not alone today. We have three guests with us. I'm meeting them for the first time. You're friends with everyone. Uh, it's, it's, it's the only way I could get anyone to do the, through the show. <laughs> I think I just said, please, please, Jeff, come on. Come on, you gotta, you please. Well, we pulled the, these three guests together pretty easily and quickly. So we've got Jeff Walpov. I don't know if I'm saying your name correctly. You are. Okay. The SVP of Writer E-Commerce. We have Kyle Burton. Burton? Yeah. Uh, it's Bertine, but Bertine. 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 Thank you. Yeah. The co founder and CEO of Two Boxes. And we have Jonathan Poma, co founder and CEO of Loop Returns. Yeah. So, James, I know you had a question kind of for all of them, and we want them to introduce themselves. So, yeah. Can we do a round of, round of intros real quick? I, for, the, for the benefit of the listener, yeah. Jeff, give me your, give me your bio. Sure. Happy to do it. Well, first, thanks for having me today. You know, this is really a pleasure. And when James called and asked, we jumped at the opportunity. So thank you. <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Jeff Wolpov, a serial entrepreneur, as, as James can relate. I uh, started a business in 1990, fortunate enough to sell it in uh, 2008, uh, which became uh, distribution, uh, was distribution solutions in 1990 and 2008 became Port Logistics Group. Uh, grew the business uh, from Port Logistics Group from 2008. Uh, fortunate enough again to sell it in 2014. In 2017, we met James. Uh, we had the really good fortune of partnering with Whiplash, uh, where we eventually made the acquisition of Whiplash, where it became part of the Port Logistics Group family. And we actually rebranded uh, Port Logistics Group to Whiplash in 2021. So to interrupt you briefly, do you remember when I first proposed that we were at a retreat, we were doing strategic and we were talking about, should we rebrand Port Logistics Group? And I said, let's name the whole thing Whiplash. And the room roared with laughter and then did it. Well, we had, we had a five-year plan and, and that plan was to reinvent our business. Our business is all about evolution. We started wholesalers going into big box retailer. Then we said, no, that doesn't work. We need to go after the retailer because the retailer is the one that makes the decision. And so then we grabbed all these retail accounts and we never gave up the wholesale accounts. But then we realized that that didn't work because it's not a supply chain, it's a demand chain and we need to go after the consumer. And so that's really what brought us to James. And then when we realized that Port Logistics Group doesn't really resonate with a new economy, but whiplash does. And so we're very fortunate that our first impulse might not have been our last impulse. <laughs> and so we rebranded the company as Whiplash in 2021 and then had the very good fortune to sell into Ryder at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, where I currently serve as a senior vice president and I run our e-commerce and omni-channel fulfillment. Fantastic. Let's do uh, Jonathan. 
cool. Uh, yeah, Jonathan Poma. Uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity to be here. This is this will be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, co-founder and, and CEO at Loop. Maybe I, I suppose in some sense a, a serial entrepreneur. Um, I've been in the Shopify and e-commerce sort of ecosystem since uh, 2014, uh, and was a first-time founder. Honestly, after being a, a 25-year-old at a little boutique startup and seeing a founder who was my age and then working at another company where the founder was my age. And it was the first time I realized like, oh, you don't have to be, I'm 38 now. You don't have to be 38 or 40. You don't, you know, you can, you can start a company at 25 and I was just dumb enough to do it and had a wife who was just supportive <laughs> enough to tell me to, to tell me to do it. Um, and the first business I ran was an e-commerce agency that did design development services for brand selling on Shopify. Um, uh, then, uh, well, I guess bef- I was at Homage, which is now a Loop customer uh, and a vintage-inspired apparel brand. I migrated us to Shopify, started my agency, and then built Loop in partnership with Chubby Shorts inside the agency. Spun it out, and and uh, and and now I'm here. Um, now I'm here, so I've kind of been brand side agency and and now tech partner side. And um, you know, we are um, in the world of logistics. Uh, we're what's called returns initiation. Um, so we're a returns management portal. Um, we've got about 3,500 merchants doing about 40 billion in GMV. Um, it's about 15% of Shopify's GMV and about one and a half percent of us e-commerce GMV. Um, we process about 18 million returns in, in 2023, um, run rate of about two and a half, three million returns now. Um, and, uh, yeah. And the space is moving quickly returns and reverse logistics, I think is really under optimized and, and really important for, for brands to be able to effectively scale in sort of the modern landscape. And, uh, I'll pass it to Kyle and I, uh, Kyle, I learned maybe two weeks ago that it was Bertine and not Burton as well. So okay. I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've Actually, called you Actually, even, even my been... family disagrees on I, this I, point. I learned, I learned uh, about 45 seconds ago. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. okay. Even my family disagrees on this point. We can talk about that later. Um, but no, uh, thanks again for having me. It's really awesome to be here, especially with, with, with Jonathan and, and Jeff. Um, I, uh, my name's Kyle Bertine. Um, I, I started my career in, in finance and, and management consulting. And then in, uh, I think 2013, I sort of fell into this logistics world backwards. Um, I, I joined a, a publicly traded mining company, um, of all things, and I was hired to do corporate strategy and mergers and acquisitions. And I ended up uh, playing a, a pretty large role in building out the, the logistics, uh, capabilities and business of that organization. And I didn't know anything about what I was doing. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm an entrepreneur, uh, you know, a serial entrepreneur like these guys, but I, I sort of at that time just developed this love of building new things, even inside of larger companies. So, um, you know, built, built a, a lot of fun things at, at US Silica. And I had this realization at that time, it was, it was like 2013, 2014, there were a lot of really interesting companies entering the supply chain space with a technology angle, right? So these companies like Four Kites, Flexport, Project 44, um, two out of those three were actually in Chicago where I was living at the time. And um, sort of was this aha moment of I love logistics and supply chain. It's like so, there's so many great people and so many fun problems to solve. And there was just not enough innovation. Um, we were running an entire logistics business for a publicly traded company basically on me building macros in Excel. Um, and so that was that was sort of my aha. I didn't know anything about uh, tech. I decided to go get my, my MBA at Berkeley as a way to kind of meet more people in the tech scene and develop that network. Uh, lived in in the Bay Area for a while. Started getting into startups. Probably one of the most formative experiences was, it, was I joined this company called Flexport, uh, which has obviously been in the news a lot lately. Um, I joined uh, to help on the strategy and operations side. I eventually became the chief of staff to the head of the ocean business, and that's where I really started learning about e-commerce logistics. I didn't really know much about e-commerce logistics, um, and Flexport was kind of on the front end of that process. But I was learning a lot more from our brands about what happens with those goods once they get into the United States. Um, that's where I first started learning about returns and kind of piqued my interest. And then I was recruited to join a company called Outrider that's based in Denver, where I now live, and they build autonomous yard trucks. So if you've been at like a large, you know, rider facility like like Jeff or uh, Amazon facility or Target or whatever, there's these large distribution centers and these little yard trucks that move trailers and containers all day. So Outrider builds a autonomous version of one of those. Um, it might not seem related, but I would go into these warehouses that were predominantly performing outbound logistics. And I would see that every single warehouse that I went into had a return section. And with all respect, every return section looked kind of like a disaster compared to the rest of it. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of my aha uh, in, in returns of, oh, wow, I think this is really interesting. And the more we dug in, the more and the more I got to meet people like, like Jonathan and, and Jeff and learn from them, the more we sort of realized that there's been a ton of innovation in the returns ecosystem, but it's primarily benefited 
the front end of this process, right? Getting a return from, you know, uh, at someone's house back to, to one of Jeff's, you know, warehouses. Um, and then when those returns arrive, I like to liken it nowadays to like a five-lane highway merging into a country road. It's really difficult to process all those returns efficiently and with intelligence. And that's where we founded two boxes to help solve that problem. Fascinating, especially on the heels of a not great return experience I just had. So our topic today and our theme today, as listeners, you may have heard, everyone has some interaction with returns. And that is our theme today. And I'm sorry to the mother-in-laws, you may not understand some of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was wondering, I was wondering, because we've, we've kept it pretty casual. So the episodes in the past, we just, we order items and then we sort of look at it from a consumer lens and we, we actually unbox this stuff. And this is a different episode. This is the industry insiders. We're at the Manifest Conference with three high profile CEOs really talking about industry stuff. So uh, I guess we'll find out if the listeners which they prefer. Because I've also, we got one review so far and it said that we didn't talk enough about return, um, you know, econ. Content, yeah. <laughs> they said we rambled, but... It was also very accurate. They're like, they ramble for an hour. There's maybe seven minutes of, of educational content. I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. I think yeah, I, lo I actually loved that review because it told me that we're appealing to the right people who want to hear us yeah. talk in depth about many things. So today we are going to talk yeah, in depth we'll about deeper. returns. <laughs> and I just want to, I want to say the reason that I do this show is I'm trying to make car talk. Do you guys remember car talk? Oh. Oh. The NPR show? Nobody's. Oh, oh my yes. gosh. Yeah. With the brothers. With the, the brothers. And they would laugh and they would talk about cars. Maybe <laughs> like they would yeah. sort of talk about cars eventually. But it was more about life. It was about life. And that's, that's why we're here. And so we'll get a little bit into the returns. I want to say the, the reason we chose these guests, is we've got the three phases of returns around the table. We've got what the consumer sees with, with Jonathan's loop. We've got the software that processes it in the facility with two boxes, and we've got the facility itself with with Ryder e-commerce and Jeff. So we've really got the whole the whole reverse logistics represented. Unless did I miss a step? No. Just the consumer. Just the consumer. Just the consumer, which we can represent. We can represent. Yeah. I've bought things online. Yeah, exactly. Well, been everyone has. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> so that's. Everyone, so it is a life. Everyone buys online. Everyone has a return experience that they can speak about. I am so curious. So when I was doing research about all three of you, Jeff, sorry, but I, I need to talk to you first and then have the others jump in. I was fascinated by the keep it returnless idea because I, I'm not a hoarder. In fact, I'm the opposite. I'm a purger. So it, it triggered me a little bit because I was like, wait a minute, what is all about? No, no, no. You go ahead and keep it. Don't return it. No, we'll I'm, just, I'm telling you, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. So I wonder from you, Jeff, what data has pointed you to this shift in policies or this shift in model what problems do you think it solves? And, you know, just talk about it and tell me what the ROI on that is. And then Kyle and Jonathan, I mean, you're on the opposite side of this. You know, you're handling returns for your, your consumers. So anything that, that Jeff says, feel free to pipe in. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, it was, it was great listening to uh, both John and, and Kyle's introduction uh, because chaos does create opportunities. Uh, returns forever were just looked at as a problem. Uh, and nobody ever really took the time to look at it as a solution. And so when you think about the return itself and how technology has evolved and has given visibility and given ease and, and given accountability to the entire return process, it's now even more important than it ever was before. What's really interesting and what really drives this is the fact that customer retention is the new customer acquisition. That's the driver. And so every one of our customers, right? So that's one other thing that we left off, the, the actual manufacturer or the retailer yeah. aspect of it is very focused on how do I retain that customer? Uh, we, we've done some research and it's five times more expensive today 
to go and acquire a new business, a new customer, than it is to keep the one that you have. And so when you think about that return experience, it's actually just another segment of the entire customer experience. And that's what really drives it. And so when you think about it, you know, we, we've done some things. We, we run a study every year. It's an e-commerce consumer study. And first of all, on a return itself, free is very important because over 50% of the people that responded to our survey said that if it's not free, I'm not going to buy it. The return is not free. I'm going to go shop somewhere else. And then we asked the question, well, if I told you you could keep it instead of returning it, what does that do? Well, it, over 60% of the people said, well, if you make it easy for me and I can keep it or I could donate it or I could give it to somebody else, I'm over 60% more likely to buy from you again. And so when you think about the drivers that are enhancing that retail experience, returns are a very significant part of that. When you think about the rising cost today of labor, of transportation, when you think about people's time and the potential of an inconvenience to make them go and, and do a return, although Loop does a, a fantastic job making that return a little bit easier for the consumer and gives the, the manufacturer or that retailer a much better chance of getting another sale as a result of the exchange. So again, technology driving this innovation, but taking something that is a problem that when you walk into a warehouse, the returns area is in the corner, the furthest possible corner, and it's normally just a pile of boxes that you're going to get to at some point. So how do you take this and make it where it's value add? How do you take this that creates brand loyalty? How do you take this where your, your customer is so happy with the experience that they want to do more business with you? And that's what the returnless return really is all about. It's ease. It's rewarding good behavior. If you have a customer that's a great customer, um, that is going to continue to be a great customer, you're going to do whatever it takes. And so maybe you are going to let that return stay where it is to enhance them to buy something else. Yeah. So when you think about that customer experience, and I think when you're in the return moment, it's like a, it's when you find out how who somebody is. And it's a great opportunity to build trust, right? Where it's... It's when everything's going well, it's easy to assume that it will always go well. But when you want to return it and you find out that there's a problem, you get into a friction point. You can either build trust and come out more in love with the brand at the other end or, you know, lose lose some loyalty there. So I got to say, you're saying, you know, just keep it. And that's obviously there's a that sounds easy to two people who make their money on the returns yep. phenomenon. How does that make you feel? Yeah. <clears throat> so we've, we've, Jeff, we've called that same term returnless refunds. And a lot of what I think is is happening, if I zoom out for a second, then I'll come back to returnless refunds, is like most industries, when technology steps in, the first thing is like, the first thing that happens is automation. You make it easy. And then you, then you optimize it. So like we're we're in this phase of returns going from like automated to 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 optimized. And um and returnless refunds, all we've done so far is is just made it possible and automated. And last year, what we saw is, is almost uh, 1.2 million of our, retur our, our returns that were initiated were returnless refunds, um, helping our merchants save on average about $10,000 in, in logistics costs, aside from the, the processing costs, uh, and delighting customers along the way. And, and where, when I talk about like just automating that, like I often think about like push mechanics and pull mechanics in, in business and like we're being pulled now by merchants to wanting to do to do more of that. The rising fuel costs, rising labor costs, rising logistics costs everywhere. It's like, okay, can we make these returnless refunds easier? And then where it has to start to get automated, um, we can put a pin in this one for now. But like returns fraud and returns abuse is a, just for our merchants, we estimate that to be a $350, $400 million annualized problem. And so an example of returns abuse with returnless refunds would be, buy a pair of Allbirds, uh, go to start a return, realize they're going to let me keep it. And then if I'm a bad actor, abusive customer, I might say, huh, I got to keep those shoes. I got my refund. Why don't I try that again and see if I can just keep buying shoes, getting refunds, not having to send it back. And that's like an example of abuse where we now need to work with dispositioning data and sort of close the, the loop, so to speak, at, at, uh, it, at, um, from initiation to processing and then say, oh, Jonathan's a and he's abusing that policy, let's no longer let him do that returnless refund. And that lets us 
deploy that at, at scale to really be cost optimized without the, without the downsides that, that come with it. Yeah. And I, I feel like that, that idea of those historicals has to play a role, right? Obviously, the vast majority of people are good actors. They, if they, they are gen, they're acting in good faith, but that's not everyone. And the, the, the small number of bad actors can be very, very expensive. And so, I mean, we've, we talked about the dispositioning data and collecting that data. And Kyle, I feel like that's, that's your jam. Yeah, absolutely. And I think increasingly it kind of needs to be the industry's jam. Um, you know, hearing Jonathan talk, one of the things that we, I think, really align on and, and we're, we're closely partnered with Loop, they're, they're just great partners. Um, I really believe that in, in, you know, five years, hopefully less, we're going to start looking at, you know, more personalized return policies and tailored return policies. And that the returnless return right now, I, in my humble opinion, it has a use case for sure. Uh, especially depending on the type of brand, the products that they're selling, especially the price point of of those products and the the dimensions of those products as well. Um, this is why like mattress brands are pretty much all returnless returns, right? It does it makes very limited sense to to send back a, a mattress to one of Jeff's facilities. Um, but I think we need to get to a point in returns where we're driving more personalized returns policies. I'm a big believer that returns are at least a decade behind forward logistics. Forward logistics, whether you know it or not, is very very personalized right now, especially driven by companies like Amazon. When we all go and check out, in a lot of cases, we're, we're seeing different offers, different kind of pricing. Even when we return, we're being given different options through Amazon today. I think the industry needs to get there. I also think that it's really important to think about the value that a return drives for the brand, right? Jeff, Jeff brought this up about, you know, we kind of left out the brand here. I think that's a really important statement. And that, you know, depending on the brand, especially for brands that tend to look like Loop customers, higher uh, selling prices, highly branded, you know, a really strong affinity with their customers, those products are actually worth quite a lot, right? So, you know, you might have a, a product that's selling for $200. The value to the merchant of getting that item back from a customer, being able to confirm its quality and then resell it, right? Especially in this environment with rising interest rates and, and, and lots of pr pressure on, on profitability for brands. I think that just keep it math really starts to become under a lot of pressure for, for brands. And then last but certainly not least, I think we also really need to think about the sustainability impacts here. Um, you know, this might surprise a lot of people, but uh, the fashion industry is actually accountable for over 10% of global emissions. To put that in perspective, that is more than maritime shipping and international flights combined, right? So it is a massive uh, problem. And if you have this supply chain right now that works as goods being uh, produced in Southeast Asia, being you know shipped over to the United States, routed to a customer, and then routed right into a trash uh, can, that's actually horrific from a sustainability perspective. And it's just the math also doesn't make sense. And I think we're still very early to Jonathan's point. We're getting to the point of like capture data, start to automate, and then optimize. But I hope that within 10 years, companies like Two Boxes are really leading the charge to kind of make this win-win-win for the brands, for, you know, the, the service providers like, like Jeff and, and for the, the planet as well. Yeah, Kyle, you, you, took, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, I was going to bring up sustainability. Uh, what we're finding in our findings uh, when we do our, our survey is that sustainability is really resonating more and more year over year with the consumers. Uh, what we asked the question and 40% uh, of the people that responded said, that if it's gonna be a, a returnless refund, 40% um, said their sustainability objectives match mine. And so it kind of resonated with the consumer that not only are you doing this to make it easy for me, but you're doing it because it's the right thing to do for the environment. Is it the right thing to do for the environment? Because I guess I, I'm not, I'm just, I, I wanna make sure we get a, a full conversation here. It seems to me that some of those goods, that you're taking new merchandise, which has value to the world, right? It's being sold as first, first level goods. And then it goes, it goes back into like maybe the donation pool or like, where is it going after this return list thing? It is no longer re-retailable. It's, it's, is it going straight to the landfill? Is it going to a homeless shelter? I don't, I don't really know where return they end up. Return that stays at the consumer or return that comes back that to the stays, distribution center? That stays at the consumer. Because I know we, we go through a lot of effort to re-retail things back at the facility. Yes. And, but if it stays out in the consumer, it can't get that official stamp of new goods again. And so, so I could just talk as a consumer. Yeah, please. Um, if I had a returnless refund and it was because it didn't fit, or because I, I, it didn't match my expectations, but it was still a product that I was interested in at some point, I would imagine that I could re-gift, and I've done that many times to my son, 
or I could gift it to a friend and, or I could donate it to a charity. And so there's lots of opportunities to keep this where another item doesn't necessarily need to be manufactured. But really where the sustainability kicks is if you have to go out and create another box and you have to then drive and you have to put it in a truck and you have to, and there's a a ton of waste when it comes back. So there's a bunch of different items. I I certainly understand and appreciate where you're coming from. I think it's a trade-off. I think it'd be interesting to find out where that where that inflection point is, because obviously the emissions cost to bring it back to facility is is on one axis, and the you know the, the the not having that and keeping it in the wild is 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 another axis that need to be compared. Yeah. Well, I had two two things that came to mind. One is um, I think that some of this um, where it certainly maybe is less sustainable or um, like. Uh, Kyle, you mentioned mattress companies. Uh, I had a, a mattress cover that that broke, and they're like, "Yeah, get rid of it." And it's like, "Well, okay." And I think they said like in the most sustainable way possible. And it's like, yeah. "Well, that just means I dragged it to the curb and well, threw and it they in the trash." Put that, and there's there's they put some that burden of, on yeah, you, sure. and so you su- you submit it in the most sustainable way possible, and they've completely yeah, yeah. detached themselves from the problem, which. That's what that's what I was going to say. So a conversation I had at breakfast today was about the returnless return puts a burden on me as the consumer to deal with it. I don't know that I love that, but to Kyle's point, if I don't love it, maybe a policy, you know, you have that data about me. So all of the data that's collected is about selling the right thing to the right person at the right time. I love the idea of the right person in that right moment. Then a return policy is tailored to me because you have that data about me. You know, now know I don't want to deal with it. I just want to get it out. Well, and maybe it's an option. You know, we can send it back. We will t- we accept it if you want it. If you want to give it to a friend, that's okay too. But that that it would be my choice as opposed to oh, we, now it's your problem to throw it away. Yep. Um, so I, I think, you know, if from the like automated to intelligent side of things with with some of these returnless refunds too, we're able to we're able to see um, based on how long ago an item was purchased, like how likely we think that item is to be resellable, and that. That is what we're part of what we're starting to build too. Where if we think this item has a has you know, if it's an evergreen item that is in season and can be sold again, we'll we'll likely take we'll likely help the merchant take it back. And and if not, we we might you know we might ask the customer to to keep it or offer to let them keep it. Yeah, yeah. I might just just add to that. I think it's such a good point. Um, This is where I think you know going back to how Jonathan framed this uh, several minutes ago. We're, we're still in this or these early innings, right? And I think the answer to, you know, what Jeff and, and, and James were going back and forth on is that it depends um, and that you can't make better uh, and better decisions unless we have enough data about this. And so I think what, what Jonathan and team are doing on the front end to understand what is the likelihood that an item is resellable, there's a lot of things with returns fraud that, that Loop is working on that I applaud them on. It's a $100 billion problem in the U.S. right now, if people don't know that. Wait, um, wait, wait. A hundred billion with a B. Um, according to the National Retail Federation, uh, uh, last year, $100 billion was lost to returns fraud in the United States. Um, and so it is a massive, massive problem. I think there's also huge opportunity within the warehouse, right? One of the data sets that we have today that's really, uh, you know, large and growing is how many, how many units go through two boxes of software every day or, or annually or whatever, you know, kind of time, uh, temporal component you want to look at it with. Um, and, and what is the yield? How many of those items are actually in first quality, able to be resold as new? And then how long does that take? Right, because the velocity here also really, really matters, right? If I am a brand and I sell swimwear and I get a bunch of returns between May and July, if those are not processed by like, you know, mid-August, they're not going to sell by Labor Day and I'm going to throw them all away, right? So understanding that velocity of how quickly can we identify good inventory and get it back out into the ecosystem is also really, really important. So I think it takes, you know, it takes partnership, right? It takes companies like Loop, Two Boxes, Rider, really working together to understand how are we going to optimize this system? Because the way that we're approaching it today, kind of working in our silos, is is not going to lead to the optimal outcome. What's interesting is this conversation, to me, goes right back to delighting the customer. Yep. And so if, Jennifer, if you feel that this is a burden for you and you don't want to take on this burden, we are not delighting you as the customer. And so it does not need to be a one-size-fits-all solution. That's the beauty of the data. That's the beauty of the information is that this is an ongoing living process 
that's going to continue to be detailed. And we're going to be able to tailor make a solution that's going to be in the best interest of the consumer, which in the end is in the best interest of the retailer. And one of the things that you mentioned was time. Well, not just am I going to miss the selling season, but you're also going to upset the customer if you're delaying the refund. And so the whole thing comes back to how do we make this customer, and that's really the focus, how do we delight this customer? How do we exceed the customer's expectations? So that customer will be brand loyal, that customer will be a a customer for life, and will continue to shop our brand and buy our products. If they're a good actor. If they're a good actor. (laughs) 100%. Because the the fraudsters, they love it. They just keep coming back. They they love our brands. Well, and and, and some some of that, fraud stuff. I mean, yeah, my note that I had down here is uh, it's for a presentation we've been later. Yeah, the hundred, it's a hundred billion dollar issue and it's, and it's an increase. Some of this is maybe a measurement and integrity thing, but according to our data, it's, it's up 300% in the last four years as well. Um, as a percentage of returns, like there are telegram communities, there are books being sold online explaining how to defraud retailers in the returns flow. And, you know, I think even zooming out to like, how did this all happen? I continue to believe that Amazon is the driver of consumer convenience and they they have set all of these expectations right but but Amazon is completely vertically integrated owns their fulfillment and they they know they're they're already optimizing returns policies right they, they are if if you're if you return too often they might force you to go to Whole Foods to drop it off they might charge you 5 or 10 dollars it may no longer be free and if you're fraudulent or abusive you just lose access to Amazon and you no longer have your account you can no longer place orders and, and the difference between Amazon having all that data and scale and these independent brands is a fraudster can just rip off one brand, maybe dispositioning data back at the warehouse closes the loop and you can stop them from doing it again. But honestly, that's like still, I mean, early innings, that's the top of the first inning, like first first pitch of, of what we're doing there. And so that you can just go retailer to retailer to retailer to retailer. And a little bit of our our vision at Loop is to be able to apply some of that scale and network effect data and intelligence that Amazon has to, to arm all these independent brands to be able to stop fraud preventatively, proactively before, before it happens. Well, and it seems like like Shopify, shop.app is, is also, yep. I, I can, they have to be going in that direction, right? If the more people that are using it, they're going to be able to enforce those across merchants. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's gonna be a lot more solutions than just Shopify's. It's a big player, but it's not the only player yeah. I might just just add, I think I think Jonathan's so so right that it's so early in just returns in general, but especially when it comes to fraud. Um, I think, you know, disposition data within the warehouse is actually really, really beneficial for this. We have a, a customer we work with today. It's a it's a brand that sells um a highly branded cookware. I bet many people at this table might own some of their products. Um, and you know, every month right now we're saving them five to six figures in returns fraud, um, just with being able to identify who these bad actors are and then enabling that, that client to be able to go and actually fight, uh, the credit card company and the, and the end consumer to be, to, to get their funds back. Right. I think in the future, what you need, what you're going to see here is I think the answer to this is, is partnership, right? And so, you know, having two boxes work with loop, but also work with lots of other folks in this space so that you can actually find these bad actors across merchants and the tech stacks that they're going after, because that is where we see the most sophisticated people are taking action. There's some really interesting startups that are going after very specific angles of returns fraud. Um, and so I think we're, we're very much evolving here. Companies like Loop are going to continue to lead the way. Uh, I think they're just huge innovators, especially in the Shopify ecosystem. Um, but I think it's it's partnerships and it's also just collecting this data so that we can uh, you know, really start to spot this. And then I also think of a, a really untapped solution here is getting good actors to opt in to uh, be part of the solution. Right? I think most customers out there actually don't understand. When I talk to family or friends or, you know, even I was in an Uber home from the airport uh, a few days ago and, uh, you know, you talk to somebody and they don't understand how any of this works, right? And they're actually kind of appalled by what they hear. And I think that getting good customers to opt in to share information and be part of the solution is also a really interesting angle to approach it. I am taking the layperson point of view over here. Is disposition data exactly what it sounds like? It's behavioral and psych- like kind of psychographic, how a, a person behaves? It's a little in- bit less exciting than that. It's considerably less exciting than that. What is it? so Yeah, so I would define it as, as really, what is the kind of quality check inside of the warehouse that's performed and what did we learn? So I'll give you an example. 
um, you know, when, when, a, uh, let's, let's go through a return, right? Maybe that'd be a fun exercise. So, um, let's say a loop customer, Jonathan mentioned Allbirds before a great, great loop customer. Um, let's say that somebody goes in and initiates a return, right? They're going to go to, to, uh, Jonathan's, uh, you know, Jonathan's website, actually, essentially it's a loop returns, you know, kind of portal, um, for Allbirds. Uh, I'm going to go find my order number, insert some information. I'm going to be asked a series of questions in loop, uh, about, please jump if I'm getting this wrong. I'm going to be asked a series of questions of, you know, what, uh, why am I returning this uh, with some, you know, detailed kind of explanations of, oh, it didn't fit or I didn't like the style or whatever it is. Then they're going to be given a series of options of, do I want to exchange it? Do I want to get a refund? Do I want to get a store credit? You know, whatever might that be. And then in uh, kind of the end of that process is they'll be given a shipping label or another way to actually tender that item back to a carrier. Then that item's going to show up at one of Jeff's warehouses. And then when it's received in the warehouse, a, a human is going to take that package. They're going to find that order um, in two boxes. If you're using two boxes, you just scan a tracking number uh, or you can search for an order and you can find, okay, you know, cool, it's from James and James sent back a pair of, you know, Allbirds and this size and he said that he didn't like them. Now, let's say that James is a bad actor just for fun. Um, in, in two boxes, we're actually going to walk that customer through an inspection and disposition process and we're going to go through, here's the things that you need to confirm about that item to determine its quality. Now, we see about 10 to 15% of our returns have significant evidence of fraud or abuse, right? Of, you know, somebody wore them outside in the mud and, you know, sent them back. Or this is very common in athletic apparel, for, for, uh, for, for one example. Um, and then our disposition data set will be, okay, well, it's this customer, this email address, this ship from address, this order number it was affiliated with. Here is the person who inspected it in the warehouse. Here's all the information that they gathered. Here's photos of that return. And here's what was decided to do with that item. That's sort of like the comprehensive disposition data set, if that's helpful. Okay. Now I get it. I, it would be really cool to assemble behavioral yeah. and psychographic data yeah, on what were these they, returns. What were they thinking when they made this return? <laughs> let's, let's get into that. Yeah. Or, or just like what we've been talking about, what it, what is their disposition in the return? That's where I was going yeah, with it. Yeah, the Jeff, person, you, not the products. Yes. Sure. Return management is complicated. You would think it would be simple, but it's complicated. And if, if the data that we are now capturing as far as returns are in the first inning mm -hmm. or second inning, the reality is e-commerce itself is probably only in the fourth inning. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot more e-commerce to be played in order to truly understand where we're going. However, we are seeing, and I keep going back to this evolution, this buy online return in store, where it, it gives the consumer another uh, approach to a return. It's, it's really good for the retailer because it gets somebody that likes your stuff yeah. in, into your stores. What's interesting is there may not be just one way to do a return, right? You could, you could put it, mm -hmm. you could keep it, you could go back to a store. But the reality is when it gets into one of, one of the rider facilities, there's not one process because we have multiple customers that have multiple systems that have multiple SLAs. And so we are trying, because I, I may do work in Columbus, Ohio, which is our, our largest e-com hub, which is going to be different from a process standpoint than I do in Southern California, which is our largest real estate holding uh, for distribution, because it could be a different system. Uh, it could be a different customer. And so what both Kyle and John are doing is they're trying to create a uniformed approach, a simplified process that we can then roll out across the board because the returns processing part of this is very far from that. It's, it's very convoluted and it's very different depending on the customer, the location and the process. Well, and just even IDing the product when you've got it coming back. So one of the things that we would, when we were selling fulfillment, the thing we would promise is we're going to ship the right barcode. I, I can virtually guarantee that we're going to ship the right barcode. But with the product that is in that poly bag, I have no idea if somebody has put the wrong item in the wrong poly bag. And when you're going back, when you're processing those returns, that's where the metal meets the road, so to speak, in that I actually have to ID the product and not just its outer wrapping. Or what you're going to have is if, if, if during returns, let's say a customer you know, gets a size 30 and a size 32 and returns them both in the wrong packaging or no packaging at all, if those go back into the warehouse, mis-ID'd, they are going to pachinko forever and cause massive downstream effects. We used to have a piece of software that would trace how many times 
you know, based on warehouse locations, we could see how many times we'd shipped the same item so that we could pull. This is a little bit, this is a little bit, I never quite got this far, but the idea was that you'd be able to pull that item and like this thing has been returned 15 times. There's something wrong with it. Like mm-hmm. get this unit and, it, and it's not visible what's wrong with it, right? It's, it's like this, it's labeled as a 30 inside, outside, it's cut too small. It's not a 30. Um, but, the, but you have to have the right information. And that's, that's where it all comes back to that ingestion when it comes back into the facility. I was going to say, speaking about the difficulty of returns, Jonathan, to your point about Amazon, Amazon has only recently made it, from my perspective as a consumer, relatively easy to return. That's been in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. It used to be the biggest pain in the bobo to return anything you bought on Amazon. So from my point of view, I always had to make sure that I was making the right decision. Now, luckily for me, I I do have some choices. I can bring it back to a Whole Foods or whatever, and they just scan it. I'm sure the Whole Foods crew is just thrilled with all the Amazon returns that they have to handle. I do not want that going into a grocery store. I know. The return goods flow. That's a I hope those are separated. But it's convenient from a consumer point of view because I'm going to go grocery shopping all the time and I just grab that little package and drop it off at customer service. Jeff, you're trying to say something, so I want to honor that. No, I I, I agree. I, I really think to look at this opportunity of streamlining the returns process, you almost have to go back to where it starts. And and. I've used the word evolution multiple times here, but this whole omni-channel approach today, retail has completely transformed. In the last 10 years, you know, that recent, retail has really transformed. And now everybody has kind of a different definition of what omni-channel is, but, but mine is just allowing a consumer to, to buy the merchandise any way the consumer wants to buy it mm-hmm. and make sure you can fulfill it. And then when it gets to the consumer, there's a pretty good likelihood, depending on the commodity, depending on the price point, where it could be as low as 2% or as high as 40% of merchandise that's going to come back. And so for years, nobody really worried about it because returns were kind of a, a loss. It was a loss leader. You were spending good money after bad. And so you just kind of waited and you ignored it and you would pretend that it would go away. But that creates an opportunity for, for folks like John and Kyle to come in because now there's a massive problem. There's a massive problem of tremendous amounts of volumes of freight that generates tremendous amounts of cost. And so with both of those together, that leads to this innovation. And these guys are right at the forefront of that. Yeah. Well, and if you even like talking about omnichannel, talk about the growth of e-commerce and you just take like the apparel segment, right? Like the, the reason this has changed if you, we just want to like almost educate a, a listener or, or a consumer is like the return rate for apparel at retail is three and a quarter percent. The return rate for apparel online is 25%. So one in $4, when, when one in $4 spent comes back, you have to start doing something with it. When, when three and a hundred dollars comes back, it's, it's a lot less critical to, to your business. So as e-commerce proliferates up, up, I don't know what it is, 15% of, of retail, it becomes a, a much bigger issue. And, and then, you know, some of this gets into like, I don't have a good metaphor for it. The, the thing that comes to mind is like, just because, just because my left hand looks like my right hand doesn't mean I'm as capable with it as, as I would otherwise be. And like, I think part of this is if you look at it in the future and imagine what reverse logistics looks like when it really works properly, we've, got a supply chain that's optimized for outbound logistics, fulfillment, getting up, getting products to customers quickly. And I'll never forget, Kyle, the video you showed me, but like, I talk about it all the time. Like you, you mentioned in the, in, in your intro, like you look at these fulfillment centers and they're clean floors and robots and QR codes and everything's clean and optimized. And then you pan to the left and there's basically a giant dumpster with, with a bunch of cardboard boxes in it. And, and that's returns. And so this, this future that we're moving toward, like fundamentally for me, if I have to look out and prognosticate, it's like, is, is outbound going to fix that or is reverse logistics going to look different and almost have an entirely different supply chain? And I, I, my gut is the latter, but I'm probably the furthest from that relative to the two. two That's a great point. And lots of our customers are now thinking about how do I avoid the problem before it becomes a problem? And so that means quality. 
if you're going to go ahead and put something online or in a retail store, you're going to have to represent exactly what it is. Is the color what you say? Is the fit what you say? Is the fabric what you say? Does it, does it fit properly? Is it the quality that I'm expecting? And so lots of our customers are spending the time right now to try to fix the problem upstream so that it won't become a return. Because a lot of people are returning it because it, it, it's the wrong size, or I thought I was a different size in this product, or online that color green looked different than the color that I received. And so if you can do a better job making sure that you're doing what you say and you're saying what you do, and you're delivering the products that the customers expect, the consumer expects, as far as quality, as far as fit, as far as sizing, that's something that you can do upstream that can help to prevent the problem downstream. Mm -hmm. And now when you, when you look at it, you say, okay, why now? You know, why are, is there so much focus because this returns processing, label generation, uh, process, um, uh, uh, everything that we're doing right now about returns, man, it, it's in hyperdrive right now. Everybody's doing it. And, and it's because returns were a necessary evil way back when. But, you know, freight rates weren't that much and, and warehouse space was kind of cheap and labor was kind of cheap. And right now, you know, in the last five years, the labor's gone up 50% and the cost of warehouse space has gone up 100% and transportation is up significantly. And so now these are real dollars. And so when you mm -hmm. take the advancement of e-commerce and the volumes that are going through with these rising costs, yeah. this is just ripe for innovation. Yeah, actually, I, I just want to like help, hopefully ground uh, some of what we're talking about, some numbers here, because I think it's really stark. So I, I like to talk about returns as this gradually and then suddenly problem. Um, and, and in the last five years, online return volumes, if you measure the gross merchandise value of that inventory, um, has 8x'd in the last five years, right? So it is a significant, and that's really to do with, with Jonathan's point of, hey, this is a very different purchasing behavior. Um, and it's a very different return behavior, number one. And then the second of like, why do we have to fix this now? I actually have a slide uh, uh, about what Jeff said in, in one of our investor pitch decks about why I think this is such a huge problem, particularly the 3PL right now is exactly what Jeff said. Right to sort of you know forgive me, but to to sort of you know simplify a a profit and loss statement for a three PL, your your biggest cost drivers are, are labor and real estate, and if you look at the price of those inputs um, from sort of a macroeconomic perspective, uh, the 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 growth in both of those input costs is dramatic. Uh, in the last ten years, uh, U.S. labor force in warehousing has actually outpaced general labor growth by eleven x. Right, 11 times more people are going into warehousing and logistics uh, to fill these warehouses because of all this demand than people just getting general jobs in the economy, right? So that's having a huge effect on wages and it's having a huge effect on industrial real estate rent, right? So the, the, the kind of the pinch that's happening in the warehouse of being able to actually turn these goods into some sort of profitable source has never been higher. And I think to Jonathan's point, I do think in the next five to 10 years, you're going to start to see dedicated kind of reverse logistics capabilities because, you know, maybe to take a step back, I know this sounds pedantic, but, you know, return, uh, returns today get routed back to fulfillment centers, right? Um, fulfillment centers are designed to do the exact opposite job at super high efficiency. And that's why goods can get to your house so fast and why Jeff can provide great rates and service. And so I think there, there needs to be change at, at more of a system level. But, you know, I think that, again, comes back to partnership and, and a lot of innovation. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I do think that a lot of this has to do with delighting the customer. But at the end of the day, we have to make money. And so we're a for-profit business. And so when I look at returns within our buildings and I look at all of the labor that goes into doing that, we're processing between 15 to 20 units, 15 to 20 units an hour. With the help of of Kyle's software, you know what 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 do you think we could process an hour if we deploy? Yeah, right now our average is on on the low end about twenty five. On the high end, we're seeing people get to fifty to sixty. Um, so it's 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 a, it can be a dramatic increase. It all depends on the process and the good and the customers you alluded to earlier. But yeah, it can be a big deal. And so we're constantly challenged with how do you do more with less? Mm -hmm. How do you become more efficient? How do you become more effective? You have to today with all these rising costs because. The consumer doesn't want to pay more and our customer can't afford to pay more. And so you have to drive that kind of productivity. And so again, the time is now in order to do that. And if you could think about this, if I could take a process that I'm doing 15 and I can then do 50, yep. that's a tremendous amount of savings that makes us more efficient where I can be faster. I can be more responsive to the customer and I can be more effective as a business. I have one more. I, this is tangential, I think, to returns, but... As we're talking about fast fashion and that being the driver of a lot of returns, I'm thinking about the emergence of the, the rental fashion 
industry. And so goods are flowing back and forth on a continual basis. And I'm just curious if any of you have insight or thoughts around that because it's not returns per se, but it is. I can just share something I've always wanted to do, and I don't think anybody wants this. But just in case, I'm going to say it. <laughs> maybe this is maybe this is the time. Remember, they all laughed when I said we should rename it Whiplash. Um, I don't know why they, they there isn't there a world where they don't have to go back to the facility. Say, like I order my size 30. It comes and I say, oh, I don't need a size 30. Well, Jeff, who might live, you know, across town, does. And now I've got the thing that Jeff needs. Why send it back, you know, on a truck on an 8 to 80-hour drive so that it can ping-pong back to Jeff? I could just give me a label. I'll send it to Jeff. I don't think anybody wants that, but it would be really efficient if you could somehow pull it off. I'll just weigh in. There's actually a company in Canada doing this right now. Are they doing uh, it? They're called, the guy's name is Bailey Newton. Uh, I think he's a, a really interesting uh, guy, good guy. Um, company's called Freight, F-R-A-T-E. Um, that's that's at least one that I know of. I think there might be others. Um, I think it's an interesting model. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of challenges to it. But I also think, I also think that there's a huge opportunity as well to partner closely with, you know, world-class operators like, like Rider and great initiation software like Loop where, return, you know, how, how does, you know, when people look at Amazon, right? Like how did Amazon kind of pull off the magic, right? It's, it's well, a lot of money um, and, and a lot of nodes, right? And so I think there's also an opportunity. Well, maybe it doesn't go from, you know, James and, and Jeff that, that live five blocks away from each other, but maybe returns from New York and New Jersey shouldn't go to Chino, California to be inspected, right? And I think that's a huge opportunity as well. It's, it's funny when you, when you bring that up about the returns, I think it's, it's commodity specific. I think that when you think about a dress that you're going to wear for an affair, it's going to go back to a distribution center. It's going to be dry cleaned. It's going to be put on another hanger. It's going to look presentable so that, because remember, when you buy something online, that's the retail experience. And whether you're renting or whether you're buying, every time you open up that package, as you know, every time you open up that package, that's your wow. That's your brand personified. And so that's going to be very important as compared to doing that. However, I have a story. So my wife only wanted a garden and she only wanted a garden. And I put in my basketball court. She didn't get her garden. I put in my, on my basketball court, I put a pickleball court and she didn't get her garden. So finally I have to buy her a garden. And so I go online and I hit this thing and it hit autofill. And so it was kind of my address and my street. And I said, okay. And I just skipped everything else, but it went to another town. <laughs> And so I, I never got this box for her to build her garden, but I do get a call from this guy in New Jersey who said, did you buy this garden box? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, it came to me. And so fortunately, well, I bought it on an Instagram site. So it wasn't one, of, but, but they were good enough that they actually sent him the FedEx level uh, label. He was nice enough that he actually took this heavy wooden thing of to, to build my wife's garden and he brought it to a FedEx place and then they shipped it to me. So it did not go back to their yeah. distribution center, yeah. but they were able to solve that problem through terrific customer service. And I was able to get my wife her garden. And, and goodwill. And I think there's, there's honestly, that's the, that's the world that I want to live in. I, I don't know if it's the world that we are. And I don't know if it's the, the I think about the timeline, the, the back to the future timelines. I don't know if it's the timeline that we are on right now, but I do think we have to work towards getting there because if there is that trust, or maybe it's a return processing center that's in your town where it does that quick balance, gets re-retailed, and then and stays in town. I think it's a more efficient system. I think it's a better world to live in. I do have to stop there. What do you mean you ordered your wife a garden and it came off? That's not a thing, Jeff. It's a thing. You, you have to buy, it's a big planter and you have to put it together and then you fill it with dirt and she gets the garden. It's like the, a, a raised like container. A raised it's a raised yeah. bed. You bought a raised, a raised bed. bed. Yes. Do you, do you have to, you have to keep the rabbits out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When my, for us to be deer, I think you'd have to cover it as yes. as well. I, uh, unrelated story. I bought I bought jalapeno plants in my North Berkeley cottage, and I put them out there. The next day, they were like a quarter inch tall. <laughs> they had been like mowed down. I think the deer really really enjoyed my my jalapeno <laughs> garden. I just had one other thing, which is sort of a plug for. I, I, I think it's still very early days for this, but I think another angle here is also resale and re-commerce, right? And so you know, but I identify items in the return stream that can't be sold at first quality, but could be sold at second quality, 
there's a huge emergence right now of like, you know, sort of uh, second sites, if you want to call it that, right? And, and brand owned, right? Where the brand is actually mm-hmm. facilitating that transaction with the customer, which helps the brand in a variety of ways. I think it's very early days on that, but I encourage people to to check that out, right? Even as a consumer, right? You can find, you know, great brands like Lululemon, North Face, uh, Arcteryx, so many more where they are driving, you know, second quality merchandise into these sites. And it's a great way, I think, to uh, lessen the impact on the economy and get some great goods in the process. Yeah, I, I think that's that's got to happen. I mean, if I I would even like look back through some of my notes over over the years, and I think back to like 2015 in like ecom direct to consumer Shopify world, like no one was even willing to sell on Amazon. And I think what brands, modern retailers are realizing is like you kind of have to be everywhere. And I, I told this story a year ago, kind of looking at the stock of, of Abercrombie, which is a weird renaissance story in, in Columbus and these traditional retailers and then public, public direct and consumer retailers. And there are a whole lot of reasons that certain stock prices are going in different directions. But, you know, those traditional retailers have a real legitimate liquidation channel flow where they can get things into Gabriel Brothers, um, into... Um, TJ Maxx, stuff like that. And, you know, the, the like early days of, of e-com from five or six years ago, you know, a brand wouldn't, they, they were, talk about problems with sustainability, like more willing to, to burn and trash items than see them end up in, in, a, in a TJ Maxx or a Gabriel Brothers. And so I think these liquidation channels, um, these, these re-commerce channels are, are critical um, one for for sustainability, second second life of of products, and you could like the the percentage of lycra and spandex and all of our like athleisure stuff is really problematic for for the the environment. But um, I think we're starting to see brands realize, oh yeah, this is like you know the the money has to drive the sustainability. And I think as these brands want to survive, these channels are critical to get five, 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar for items that they wouldn't otherwise receive a, a penny of yield from. And so that is, and I think, you know, obviously a plug for this whole return space, but, um, you know, if a merchant has a 30 day return policy and it's day 50 and that item is still good, we should be processing that item. We should be initiating that return in loop and just routing it somewhere else. It, it may not be valid to go back to the merchant, but it can go somewhere and it can be resold. And and so that I I do think is it's it's not something uh, that is like core to our product offering today, but is something that we're we're deep in, in exploration for. And I I bet if we're sitting down here twelve months from now, uh, looking back at like what we thought would happen over the last twelve months, I, I think it's a lot more active part of of the returns initiation program, uh, and then the reverse logistics world that that we all live in. Well, I hope I hope we get to do that, and we'll we'll hear you talking about. It. I think that's that's. That's a really good segue. I think so, too. I think we should end with um, let's meet again next year. And I would love to hear what you think we'll be talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for having us. This has been fantastic. Who has uh, anything to promote? We can go around the, the horn real quick. Um, well, again, thank you guys. Really appreciate the opportunity to be surrounded with with folks like this that are certainly trailblazing. Um, it's a great time to be in the 3PL business. You know, Ryder is a, a fantastic company, as as my boss, the president of supply chain, says. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing time to be a part of the Ryder team. Uh, as we continue to expand, um, we're continuing to make acquisitions. Uh, we're continuing to get into new spaces. Uh, we're very, the business is changing. It's really tech focused, but it's always about our people and it's always about delighting our customers. And so, uh, appreciate the opportunity to to be here today and to participate in this discussion. Um, I did just echo what Jeff said. I think a big thank you to you all for for having us and and for for these guys. Uh, you know, just being with them is is fantastic opportunity. Um, so as far as two boxes goes, I mean, we're we're, we're growing fast. Uh, we grew our our average monthly return volumes last year about fifty x, um, and uh, we're working with a lot of great companies uh, on the three PL side and the merchant side. So I'd say if you're a 3PL, uh, that's our primary customer base. If you're a 3PL who's looking to 
uh, you know, kind of attack the the cost centers in your business that that Jeff talked about, and also provide better service to your merchants and and have a great experience for your team in the warehouse. Um, we'd love to meet you and talk to you. Um, and also, if you're a merchant, especially if you're a loop merchant, uh, we just announced yesterday a, a, a partnership between Loop and Two Boxes. If you're a loop merchant and you're looking for for better service and and data out of your return operation, uh, talk to talk to Jonathan first, uh, and, and then uh, and then hopefully you know Jonathan can introduce you to us and and we can do some fun things together. Yeah, um, uh, I'll echo the the gratitude for the for the opportunity to do this. Um, and I think, you know, ho- hopefully when we sit back down in a year, um, there's a lot more that that honestly that maybe maybe the the three of our companies have have done together to to really build a, a reverse logistics optimized um, network to you know basically solve this solve this ridiculous problem of all returns going full freight back to you know across the country from New Jersey to California. Um, and, and routing and, and building those nodes and, and building, you know, better experiences for the operators in the warehouses and more profitable businesses for merchants that they can obviously reinvest in delighting their customers, which, um, which again, is what this is all about. Great. Perfect. Everything's wonderful. Let's right. go take a picture. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. James's latest company is called Trivial. They are building a data platform for online businesses to quickly see the metrics that make a difference. And Jennifer's business, Roo, that's R-O-U-X, provides the operating structure for growing businesses so they can move from fires to flow. If you have an unboxing experience you'd like us to evaluate, you can find us on LinkedIn. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Unboxing E-Commerce wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye.